So glad to be with you once again. Let's take our Bibles today and uh, join me in Genesis chapter 6 yet again. Uh, we are, fair warning, going to cover a lot of ground today. And so we're going to be jumping into the thick of things almost immediately. But just to set this up, last week we looked at this man, Noah. And we observed that Noah was a righteous man. And just to refresh your memory about that, here's what it says of Noah in chapter 6, verse 9. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He's blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. But now watch this. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And what that tells us is that he's, he's got a family here. This is a man uh, who is in a genealogy that is featured in a historical fashion. Now, we talked about last week how Noah pops up in the New Testament, not just the Old Testament. Peter mentions him in both of his letters. Uh, he obviously shows up in Hebrews 11 in that book. Jesus, in three of the Gospels, talks about Noah. And everywhere he is pictured in the New Testament, he is presented as an historical flesh and blood person. And if anybody, and there are people out there that talk about Noah, they talk about what we're going to talk about today, the flood account, and they say, well, that's all allegorical, that's all symbolic, that's all just uh, thematic, we're just to extract some meaning from it, but it didn't really happen that way. Well, if you believe that, then you must think Jesus is an idiot, because Jesus talks about Noah as a flesh and blood, actual historical human being, and he is presented in the New Testament just as he appears in the, in the book of Genesis as we have studied here. But what we're going to look at today, not so much the man Noah, we talked about him last week, we're going to look at the event with which he is associated, all right? Uh, an event that he spent a hundred years preparing for. It's an event that his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather all anticipated, all proclaimed through their actions to the world and it is the most catastrophic event in human history, and it's called the flood. And that's really all you need to call it, is the flood. There have been numerous floods in human history, but there's only been one, the flood. This is the flood. Nothing like this has ever happened before or since. And as we discuss, there's a reason for this flood. And the reason, quite simply, is this, that every last person on planet Earth at this time with the exception of Noah and his family, every last person was demonically corrupted. And so there is a flood coming. There is an agent of God's wrath that is coming. Look now at verse 11 of chapter 6. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And if you got your Bible open, I would encourage you to underline that phrase, with the earth. That's very important because there's some people who say, well, this flood, this was just a local flood. This wasn't a global flood, worldwide flood. Get out of here with that. No, this was, this was like, uh, you know, this is like the Johnstown flood. This was like Hurricane Katrina. This was something localized. It was certainly not a global thing. Well, this phrase says, I will destroy them with the earth. If you have an old NIV from 1984, it reads this way, I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And so I just want to get that out of the way because I take the Bible at face value. I believe that what it says, it means what it means it says. And so we're looking at this catastrophic event. And this is really the backdrop and we're going to learn about it. And as we study, you will uh, uh, receive some information that's fascinating about the flood. But we're, along the way, going to pick up some important lessons. And today I want to give you six lessons for the Christian in the flood story. And it's more than just a story. But nonetheless, there are six lessons here for us today. And each of these lessons begins with a single word. It's it, it really just comprised of a single word. Just to keep it simple. And the first lesson in your notes, number one, is build. Build. God tells Noah to build something. Now, you and I are told to build something as well. Noah is told to build an ark. Build an ark. In verse 14, God says, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. 
that phrase, gopher wood, sometimes it's translated cypress. You might have a Bible that says cypress. And that's because the original word here implies it's a resinous wood, and so that would promote water tightness, air tightness. That could be cypress. It would fit the bill. Uh, gopher wood, there's an old joke that perhaps the term gopher wood was coined by Noah's three sons because for 100 years, that's what their dad told them to do, gopher wood. You know, I busted that out on my 12-year-old son in the car on the way to church this morning. He said, Dad, are you really going to tell that joke? I said, I am. I absolutely am. And then he grinned because he thought it was pretty funny. But anyway, Make an ark, and then he says, make rooms in the ark. And the original word there is literally translated nests. Make nests. And so there are places of habitation on this ark. And he says, and cover it inside and out with pitch. Cover it with pitch. Why would he need to do that? That would promote air tightness, water tightness. Now look at the size of this thing. Verse 15, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Now, that may mean nothing to you. You're like, what in the world is a cubit? All right, well, a cubit would be from the tip of your elbow to the tip of your pointer finger right here. Okay, now, obviously, that's going to vary from person to person. A Scott cubit is not the same as a LeBron cubit, all right? But nonetheless, on average, what we're talking about in total length of this thing, it's about 150 yards long. It's about 25 yards wide. It's 45 feet high. That's three stories. Some say, well, that's big, but that's, that's still not big enough to hold all the animals on earth, uh, representatives from every species on earth. Well, hold on. Scholars believe that this ark weighed, because of its dimensions, it must have weighed uh, 22,687 tons or thereabouts. It would have had a million and a half cubic feet and there have been some that have observed that that would be akin to uh, around 600 railroad cars. 600 railroad cars. Now, if you took today a, a two of every species of animal on earth, and we've got about 17,000 plus species, if you took two of each species, it would only take 188 railroad cars to accommodate all of those animals. And so would you have enough room on this ark? You would absolutely have enough room. The world's biggest zoo would fit quite nicely in this vessel. And by the way, as we're going to read in a bit, many of these animals are going to come in twos, in twos uh, of every kind, two of every kind, all right? Not, not two of every breed. And so you don't have every breed of dog represented, okay? You're not going to have two Dalmatians and two pit bulls and two German shepherds. You just need two canines. Some of us had a, a storybook when we were kids of Noah's Ark. And, of course, it's, it's never portrayed accurately in things like that. The Ark usually looks like some kind of a wooden bathtub that's overcrowded. And, uh, you know, a giraffe hanging off the side. And there's a plank going up to that thing. And in these storybooks, you might see two lions and two tigers. Well, you wouldn't need that. You just need two felines, okay? God will take care of the rest, all right? God doesn't use macro evolution. You're never going to have a dog turn into a cat or a fish turn into a man or anything like that. But micro evolution is certainly something that exists and that God would use. And so he will take care of the various incremental changes so that there would be various breeds and such. There would not need to be those on the ark. By the way, if you've not been, let me encourage you to check out the ark encounter. Up in Williamstown, Kentucky, uh, Answers in Genesis, got a lot of respect for them. They do their homework. They've done a phenomenal job with that. If you take your family, you won't regret it. Your Bible will just come alive. So I just want to let you know about that. When Noah builds this thing, when he gets started here, how old is he? Well, if you, if you read the text, you can discern how old he was when he started. And we believe he was about 500 years old when he started building this ark. Genesis says his sons are born around that time that he started building them. We know that his son Shem was 100 years old when his son is born, and that's two years after the flood. And so here's Noah, and he begins at 500. You might be thinking, how can a 500-year-old be slinging around these, these wooden beams? Uh, how, can, how can a guy that old build this thing? I mean, he can't, uh, you know, a guy that old, obviously that's too old by today's standards to even be upright. Uh, but presumably he would be decrepit, much less could he build the Titanic here. Two things to consider here. One, 
humanity was very different in those days. People were long-lived, and they were strong, and they were virile for much, much longer. Obviously, if they're having children in their hundreds, then they, they were of much more uh, uh, heightened energy and ability later in life. So there's that. Secondly, do not discount supernatural means by which God assisted Noah in building this ark. We don't know what they might have been, but God is certainly capable of that. But it would take roughly a century for the ark to come to completion. Now take a look with me at verse 16. He says to Noah, make a, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. Uh, this says roof. I don't know if you've got a different translation, but uh, the word there in Hebrew is not the word for roof. It's soher is the word in Hebrew. And it's translated as window. Now, obviously, you need a roof. If the rain's going to come, you're going to need a roof if there's going to be a flood. But this is not that. This is a window, and not a window as you and I think of a window. This window would extend around the perimeter of the top part of that boat. It's not going to be very uh, high, going to be presumably very narrow, but it will extend all the way around. Might be a series of windows there. What is that for? Well, what do you need if you've got all the world's animals in one place? Ventilation. All right, I need it for my 12-year-old's bedroom. I would want it for this boat. Okay? And then God says, and set the door. The door, not, not a door, the door of the ark in its side. All right, there may have been a long window or series of windows. There's one door in the side of this boat, one point of access and only one. And we've talked about the comparison to Christ here. We've looked at that. There's one means of salvation. You enter God's means of deliverance through one way. And obviously Jesus, he, in fact, in John's gospel, he says, I am the door. I am the door. There's only one way to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by Christ. And then he says, make it with lower, second, and third decks. Uh, probably one for Noah and his family, obviously one for the critters, and then one for the remainder of the food that he's going to bring. And so it's got a lower, it's got a second, got a third debt. And you'll note that God at this point still has not told Noah specifically why he's building this thing. Noah knows the judgment is coming. He's known it for centuries. His father knew it. His grandfather knew it. But God has not told him the specifics of that judgment until right here in verse 17. He says, for behold, I will bring... A flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. I will bring a flood. This is the first time Noah's ever heard the word flood. Does he even know what it means? Probably not. Had it ever rained before at this point? No. And so God is telling him to build a boat before he tells him there's a flood coming. Keep in mind Noah's mindset. While he's doing this. And we talked about this a little bit last week. We read in Hebrews that he does this by faith. What is faith? We defined it. We said faith is operating your present life on the basis of a future fact. Noah had no idea. He knew a judgment was coming, but he'd never seen that judgment. He didn't know the nature of that judgment. Well, listen, you and I, we are building something right now. We are operating our present life on the basis of a future fact. We know what's coming. We know it by his word, but we've never seen heaven. We've never seen hell. We've never seen anything that is promised in Scripture with our own eyes. But we are building. We are building right now. On the basis of that promise, Jude 20 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. We are to build. We are builders. That's our design. We're to invest in eternal things, not temporary things. What's eternal? The word of God is eternal. The souls of people are eternal. When Noah's building that boat in a landlocked country before the advent of rain, did people think he was a little cray-cray? Yes. Do people look at you and think you're a little nuts? Well, I kind of hope they do. I'm okay with that. I really am. If people look at Lamb's Chapel members and they go, you know, that bunch is nuts. They're like, they're... I'm okay. Now, I don't want them to think you're foaming at the mouth weird, okay? But... But a little off is fine. That's, that's perfectly biblical. We are to be a peculiar people because we are building our life on the basis of something yet to come, something unseen. A great Bible teacher at Dallas Theological Seminary, I think, it, I think it was Howard Hendricks, he told his students the following. He said, my fear for you is not that you fail. 
My fear for you is that you succeed at the wrong thing. That'll preach. I don't fear if you fail. I fear if you succeed at the wrong thing. How many of us are succeeding at the wrong thing? And we need to be successful at that which God values. Build. And then number two in your notes, we are to gather. We are to gather. We are to build and we are to gather. What does gather mean? Here's what verse 18 says. It says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. What is Noah gathering? People. He's gathering people. What else is he gathering? You might say, I guess animals. Well, let's find out. Verse 19, and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of each sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. You ever wonder how Noah gets all these critters in the ark? When you were a kid in Sunday school, did your mind wander and you start picturing Noah running around, you know, with an aardvark under each arm? You know, maybe grab a handful of snakes and he's throwing them into the ark and then he runs down that plank and he gets some peanuts and he's luring the elephants up that plank. You ever wonder, did, God, did Noah have to do that? You don't read any of that in here. Who brought those animals to that vessel? God did. In verse 20, it says, Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort, important line, shall come into you. They will come to you. And uh, these particular creatures are divinely directed. Verse 9 is going to say that they went into the ark with Noah and his family. And it's like God just kind of touches them and whispers, migrate and hibernate. And I kind of wonder if migration and hibernation started with the flood. They, they would have had no need for such a, a thing prior to that flood. And so I've, I've pondered this, that perhaps it was this event by which God placed an instinct into select animals that at a certain time of year they must flee to a certain spot and hole up and wait. It's interesting to think about. I don't know if that's true or not. We'll have to get to heaven and find out, I suppose. But here's a note. If you ask anybody how many of every kind of animal were on that boat, what would they say? Two, even the non-believers, even the atheists, they know the answer to this question. Ah, oh, it's two. Because everybody's like, yeah, two by two. You know, they think of a song that they heard or something like that. And that's, that's what we just read. But listen, that is not a maximum limit across the board. That's a minimum standard number. You need two to repopulate. Uh, but there will be, apparently, some creatures that God will mandate more of than just the two. If we... Skip ahead to chapter 7, as we will now do in verse 2. Here's what it says. You're going to need seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Seven pairs. Some of you are like, I've never seen that before. It's amazing what you discover when you read the Word of God. How many is seven pairs? That's 14. 14 of a kind of animal. 14 to some, two of others. Uh, the animals of which there would be seven pairs are deemed as clean animals. What does that mean? Why would you need more of those? Uh, question, is this going to be for food? Is God having him bring certain animals, more of those, so that they had food on the ark? And the answer to that question will be, well, not yet. Not yet, because Noah's not allowed to eat meat yet. The freedom, the permission to eat meat doesn't come till after the flood. So no ribeye for Noah until they land, okay? And so could this be God helping stockpile some livestock for later on? Maybe, maybe. But I think there's a more important purpose in bringing these, uh, this many animals on the ark. Uh, I would say they are designated for an institution begun by God. Back in Eden, if you recall what happened in Eden, after the fall, what did God do? He shed the blood of some animals and he covered Adam and Eve. And there became an institution that we saw played out. We saw it in the story of Cain and Abel. What is it called? It's called sacrifice. It's called sacrifice. And so later the law will emerge and the law will dictate that only clean animals are to be used for sacrifice. Now, 
in Noah's time, there's no law. There's no Moses yet on the scene. Uh, and so the designation of clean is really not left up to Noah. He doesn't have to know what clean means. God's the one that's bringing these animals. So he is orchestrating all of this as he brings these to Noah. But the point is here, Noah gathers people. He gathers people. He also gathers provisions in verse 21. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, store it up. And it shall serve as food for you and for them, the animals. Okay? Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. So Noah was commanded to build. We are commanded to build on the righteousness of God. Noah was commanded to gather. Are we commanded to gather? Indeed we are. What is Noah called by Peter? He's called a herald of righteousness. He was proclaiming the righteousness and the salvation of God so that anyone who would respond would be welcome to come with them. Did he have any converts? No. In a hundred years of building that boat, there were only uh, seven other people that would join him on that vessel. Are we called to herald the righteousness of God? We are. And we're to do so, even if they don't respond. Noah was not belligerent about those people. He wasn't building that boat, and as he's hammering, he's shouting down, Yeah, this is our escape. You all can go to hell. He didn't say anything like that. And we're to have a perspective of let's take as many as we can. Luke 14 says, And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people. Compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Let's take as many as we can. Gather. And not only gather, but in your notes, number three, enter. Enter. We are to build, we are to gather, we are to enter. Here's what God tells Noah, Genesis 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. When does Noah enter the ark? When does he enter the ark? There was a movie a few years ago about Noah. I hope you didn't see it. It was a waste of time. I didn't watch the movie, but I've seen enough clips to know that it was unbiblical in many regards, and this is typical. Hollywood seldom gets biblical epics right. The days of Cecil B. DeMille are maybe as close as we've ever gotten, you know, and some like this Chosen series and, you know, look, here's the tendency that Hollywood has. They don't find the Bible interesting enough, and so they add subplots and added characters and storylines, and I have no problem with creative license. I really do not. I, I myself enjoy that. Just don't contradict Scripture. That's all I ask. You want to have a conversation between Noah and his wife? I'm all for it. Make it interesting. Just don't contradict the Word of God. But every scene with Noah coming on that boat, to make it interesting, what they've done is Noah sees the rain coming. He sees a tidal wave coming toward him. And so he runs in slow motion, and he just barely makes it in time, and that ramp comes up, and then the waves crash against the boat, and water kind of gets inside the boat and all of this, and it's very intense, but he just barely escapes by the skin of his teeth. Is that how it happened? Look at verse 7. It says, And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Now you look at that and you go, well, that, that sounds kind of intense. They went in to escape. But when did they go in to escape? Drop down to verse 10. It says, and after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. They were on that boat for seven whole days. When did Noah get on the ark? Was it when the flood came? No, he got on the ark when God told him to get on the ark. He got on the ark a full week before the flood. Not a raindrop touches Noah. He's as dry as a bone on that ark. And in verse 13 and 14 tells us that all the animals went with them onto the ark as well. They all boarded at the same time a whole week prior. No latecomers, no stragglers, none of that. And you learn something interesting. Why did they board a whole week before the flood came? Later in Genesis, we learn there's a custom that when someone dies, there's a week of mourning. When someone dies, there's a week of mourning. Who may have died a week before the flood. Noah had, a, Noah had a grandpa. His grandpa's name was Methuselah. 
And if you remember what we've said about Methuselah, Methuselah's daddy, Enoch, walked with God. God told him about the judgment that was to come. What did Enoch in faith do? He names his son prophetically, Methuselah, Muthshalach. What does it mean? It means he dies and it shall be sent. His name is a prophecy that when this man, Methuselah, passes from this earth, the judgment will come. And so it is possible, I believe, that Methuselah passes away and he goes to paradise. And they bury that saint and God says, all aboard. And they get on that boat and the seven days of mourning pass and then comes the judgment. And in this picture. This is a beautiful picture here. Noah finds the grace of God. God declares him righteous. If you are righteous, that means your eternity is secure. There's no coming and going. When God declares you righteous, you are righteous. God gives him assurance of the fact of future judgment. Noah lives his present life on the basis of that future fact. And as he is living out his life, the righteous are saved and the wicked are condemned. And seven days before the judgment comes, Noah disappears from humanity. He goes into that ark. Judgment proceeds to fall on the earth. And when the earth is rid of evil and sin, Noah reemerges. And it's a new world. That's like us. That's like us. We find grace in the eyes of God. We don't earn it. We find it. He declares us righteous by faith. We enter through the only door of salvation. Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and it's easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We go through the narrow gate. We are given the assurance of a future judgment. We know this from his word. We live our present lives on the basis of that future fact. And through our testimony, some will accept it, some will reject it. And one day, we will disappear from the sight of humanity, and there will be a seven-year period that will follow. And judgment will fall on the earth, and then we will reemerge, and it will be a new world. What a beautiful picture in Noah. And there is a pattern in your Bible, folks. You see it as plain as the nose on your face that the redeemed of God never go through the wrath of God. They do not. God takes Enoch out before judgment. God takes Noah out before judgment. All right? There's a man in Genesis we're going to read about eventually, Lot. He is considered a righteous man, though he is deeply flawed. God declares him righteous. He removes him before God destroys Sodom. All right? He will remove his church before the tribulation falls. Not because we're not courageous. Not because we don't have a high pain threshold or anything like that. It's because the tribulation is not a time of persecution. We are not promised to be uh, uh, withheld from persecution, but we're undergoing persecution since the dawn of the church. When the tribulation comes, it's not a time of man's persecution. It's a time of God's wrath. And we, the church, will not be the object of God's wrath. Who's he looking for in that day? The unbelieving. Those who have rejected him. You don't shoot through your bride to get the burglar. And you don't drown Noah to get the pagans and the godless. And so Noah's told, build He's told, gather. He's told, enter. Now, watch how specific God gets in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Uh, it's been said that today we'd never see 40 continual days of rain. There's not enough moisture up there for it to evaporate and condense and all that stuff. We wouldn't get 40 days of rain. If you recall in Genesis 1, we learned something. We learned that God put a firmament to separate the waters above from the waters below. Do you remember that? We talked about in the garden that there was a river that came up from the earth. It had no oceanic source or anything like that. It just came up from beneath and it watered the earth. And so we talked about how the earth was, uh, had a canopy over it. There was a greenhouse effect on the earth that this is how it happened. That there were these uh, uh, waters below, these 
chambers, these subterranean pools that water would come up and water the earth and then that water would condense and it would come back down and it just kept it in a perpetually green state. And that's how the earth was watered pre-flood. And so I believe the fountains of the great deep were there from the dawn of creation to, to take care of God's earth. And you say, uh, underground chambers of water. Okay, H.G. Wells. Sounds a little journey to the center of the earth to me. <laughs> That's crazy. All right, listen. Last week, saw an article put out by the Smithsonian. And it was talking about the discovery of a massive ocean beneath the earth's crust. And this is confirmed by scientists in the Smithsonian article, and it contains three times more water than is currently on the face of the earth. Can you believe that? Confirmed by scientists. One scientist said, this is a direct quote from the article, he said, I think we are finally seeing evidence for a whole earth water cycle, which may help explain the vast amount of liquid water on the surface of our habitable planet. Scientists have been looking for this missing deep water for decades. Oh, really? Well, nobody asked me. I could have told you it's right there in Scripture, right? And this is how it usually goes. Christians believe the Bible. We get called all kinds of crazy, and then some, someday there comes a report that drops that basically confirms everything that we already knew. And, of course, nobody says anything about how this all confirms or affirms Scripture. But there we are. But in Genesis 7, what happens to these fountains? They break open. They erupt. And creationists contend that within the earth there would be potentially volcanic eruptions that would shoot these waters high above the earth, as well as uh, debris, as well as perhaps molten material. It could possibly go as high so as to pierce the canopy. And so you've got water coming from beneath. Now you've got holes in the canopy. The windows of heaven are now open. And so the moisture, the water that is up there now can come down. And so water is coming up. Water is coming down. There's no vapor canopy anymore. And all of that combined produces a flood that covers the earth. And from it, there will be no escape. And in verse 17, it says the flood continued 40 days. Now you can have 40 days of rain. On the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth, and the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And here's, an, here's another command, here's another lesson for us in this story. Number four in your notes rest. Rest. Noah, just remain on that ark. Okay, Lord, what, what, what do I do? Nothing. You just remain on that ark. Now we think of the ark as a big boat, but technically is it a boat? Or is it more of a life raft? Is it a life raft? What does a life raft not have? Well, there's no way to really steer that thing. It's just to preserve you, all right? Uh, on this ark, there are no navigational capabilities. There's no sail. There's no rudder. There's no giant oars. You just go aboard. God shuts the door, and you chill. You just chill. And that's what Noah's doing. God's the captain. He's going to take that vessel where he wants it to come to rest. And listen, this is us as well. All right? We enter into his rest. Christ is our Sabbath. He is our rest. And we climb aboard his ark of safety. We trust him to guide us. Uh, we trust him to, uh, uh, to provide for us. We don't run things as bad as we want to. Some people come to the cross and they try to fix a rudder on that cross. They try to mount a sail on that cross. Try to slap a bumper sticker on it that says, God is my co-pilot. Uh-uh. God is the pilot. You're the passenger. That's it. All right? The thought of Noah rowing that ark is ridiculous, but no more ridiculous than you trying to run your own life. Just stay in the boat. Paul writes to the Philippians, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, and with that full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether life or death. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? Are you trusting in the Lord in that way? You got to rest. 
Back to Genesis, we go in verse 19, like the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. So much for a global or a local flood. All the high mountains, all means all, under the whole heaven, what were they? Covered with water, and the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, the highest mountain on earth. Let's say that was Everest. I don't know if Everest was created by the flood or if it predated the flood, but whatever the highest mountain was, it was topped by water. Topped by water. All flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarmed the earth, all mankind, everything. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, they were blotted from the earth. Only Noah was left. Those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed 150 days. This is a total reset to before. Right after God created matter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he proceeds to make and form all of that. What does verse 2 of Genesis 1 say? It says, And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. You could take Genesis 1-2 and drop it right into Genesis 7, and it would make sense. We are going back to Genesis 1, verse 2. It's just the Spirit of God and water. The earth is formless and void. Everything beneath the surface is just total chaos, total destruction, nothing left alive, and no tears are shed. The language used here is almost clinical. It says, and God blotted all of them out. They were blotted out, every living thing, blotted from the face of the earth. And folks, this is the nature of judgment. Our God is a just God. Justice must be done. You look at this. Some people say, well, that's cold. No, coldness is different from justice. Coldness indicates brutality toward the innocent. This judgment had nothing to do with the innocent. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so there is a justice to God. You say, what I thought God is loving. He is. He is both simultaneously and perfectly. You want mercy? Here's mercy. Genesis 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah on the watery vastness of this devastated planet. There floats a speck, a little tiny box against the scope of that planet. And all the beasts, it says, and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The water, he made a wind. I think that's noteworthy. There's a wind. The word for wind is ruach, ruach. Same word for spirit in Genesis 1. The spirit of God, ruach. The breath of life in Genesis 6, ruach. Same word. Verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. God turns a spigot off. And the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now this is interesting. There is a mountain in Turkey. It's called Mount Ararat. And many believe that that is the final resting place of Noah's Ark. That if you were to go up there uh, you know, and, and look in the right spot, maybe you would find whatever's left of the Ark. It's either on it or within the mountain itself. Uh, Mount Ararat is a 17,000 foot mountain in Turkey. It's bigger than any mountain in the lower 48 here. Is the ark on that mountain? Maybe. I don't know. We're, we're not actually told that it landed on Mount Ararat. We're told it landed in the mountains of Ararat. That would imply the range of which this particular mountain is part. Now, this is the tallest of all of those mountains, at least now, today, it is. It says, And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So if this was the tallest mountain, then it would be the first one to be visible. I do find this fascinating. There are people who have dedicated their lives to searching for Noah's Ark. They write books about it. They go on expeditions. You can go on that mountain. You've got to get a permit from the government of Turkey. Very difficult to do. Uh, would it, if they found remnants of Noah's Ark, would it change things for me? Would it make me believe this book more? No. No, because I believe it completely now. And you should too. Because blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet believe. We believe this is God's word, no matter what. And I, I see some more things here that I find interesting. In verse 6, it says, At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark he'd made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. What kind of bird is this raven? It's a scavenger. What do scavengers feed on? Dead things. And so he sends this bird out. Bird flies here and there. This raven never comes back. Never know how do you do. No, we'll see ya. Peace out. He's gone. Why? Because there's a smorgasbord out there. He feeds on dead things. That's all that's left is dead things. And so he's gone. He's got no affiliation to Noah. He is fulfilled by and craving of decay and death. But then there's another creature, verse 8. He sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. It's very interesting. When he sends this raven out, it's, it's referred to as an it. It went out. It did not return. This dove goes out. It says the dove found no place to set her foot. She returned to him. Very interesting. Two creatures. One is a scavenger, feasts on death. The other is a dove with which we associate the Holy Spirit. A white dove, right? And this dove reminds me of the peoples of God. I think of Israel. I think of the church in Scripture. Often Israel is referred to as a woman. That language is used. The church is the bride of Christ. And so that kind of personality is assigned to her. Does this dove Find fulfillment in that which is dead. No. She wants nothing to do with it. She comes back to the ark. She will, she will not touch what is defiled and decayed. Will not. She comes back. She has no place to land. So where does she come? She returns to find rest. Rest. What does Noah's name mean? It means rest. It means rest. It says he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. Where do you find rest? Do you find rest? Do you find your fulfillment, your satisfaction in the things of the world? That which is decaying, that which is dead? Or do you turn to the life giver? We see in verse 10, he waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And so Noah knew the waters had subsided. She brings back evidence of life. This is not carrion. This is not... Uh, uh, something from some carcass. It's fresh. She didn't scavenge it. It wasn't floating in the water. This is from a living branch. She'd found her home. And now he turns her loose. Verse 12, he waited another seven, sent forth the dove. She did not return anymore. Those who embrace the grace and the salvation of Jesus Christ are then sent out. Those who show that they crave life found in him and in him alone, he intentionally sends those out into the world. And we see in verse 13, in the 600th year, 601st year rather, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and look, behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. How long was he in that ark? Well, if you, if you consider that the floodgates of the heavens and the fountains of the deep burst open on the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year, so that's, that's 47 days into his 600th year, and then you consider that the water dries from the earth by the first day of the first month of his 601st year, you can do a little math. You take a year, 365, you subtract 47 days from that, you get 318. And then you think about this. Noah and his family left the ark on the 27th day of the second month of his 601st year. So that's one month, 27 days in. That's a total of 57 days. So you add 57 days to 318, you got 375. Now, they entered a week early. And so seven days added to that, you get 382. Noah was on this vessel one year, 17 days. That's faith in an animal-filled boat with your in-laws, all right? 
And he rested. He rested on that ark. And so we are to rest. But also, here's another lesson for us in your notes. One word, reproduce. Reproduce. You remember there was a command given to Adam and Eve. God gives the same command to Noah. Verse 15, he said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons, your sons' wives. And then look down at the last line of this passage. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Time to repopulate. Time to fill this earth. We're starting afresh. Folks, you and I are to reproduce spiritually. Our faith must be reproduced in others. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples. We're to, we're to make disciples. And those disciples are to be trained to make disciples. Because if you're not making disciples, you're not a disciple. A disciple makes disciples. Reproduce. And then the final lesson here. One word. Worship. Worship. And this may be the most important lesson of all. In verse 20 it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. You know what's more important than building an ark? Building an altar. This is the kind of man Noah was. It's the kind of person you and I ought to be. Somebody who understands what God did for them. Somebody who understands what God says he's going to do and we count it as already done. And in the meantime, on the basis of that fact that has not become sight, we live our life and our life is a sacrifice on the altar of what he has done right here. And worship is the most important thing to God. It's also the most important thing to our enemy. Worship is of vital interest to Satan. He wants it. He craves it. You know, Satan, smart, highly intelligent. He doesn't know everything. In fact, he's not omniscient, and there is much that I'm sure he had no idea what God was doing. When Jesus was on that cross, I bet Satan thought he was winning. Oh, man, we're going we're gonna to off this Messiah character. He's going to go in that tomb, and it's, it's all over. I bet he didn't even know what had happened until three days later. And I bet with this flood, he didn't know what was going on either. I mean, you got global carnage. Well, that makes him happy, the devil. He's probably loving every minute of this. He's probably thinking, ha, 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 we did it. We tainted humanity. We corrupted mankind. God's throwing in the towel. He's destroying everything. He's giving up. We did it. We did it. We did it. Can you imagine Satan's demonic general's coming to report to him in the aftermath of that flood. Can you imagine that moment? Well, boys, come on, talk to me. Give me the report. How'd everything go? Well, boss, uh, you should have been there. I mean, uh, you know, bodies everywhere. <laughs> it's, yeah, boy, it's, it's a real catastrophe. All right, great. So, so, so did we do it? Did we wipe out mankind so that Redeemer doesn't come? Did we wipe out mankind? Yeah, uh, pretty much. Sure, pretty much. What do you mean? What do you mean? Pretty much. What do you mean? Well, there, there's there's this there's this one guy, one guy. All right, one guy. All right. Well, tell me tell me about the one guy. What about him? Well, he's he's the last man on earth, so he, he's got everything. It's all his now. So I guess you could say he's he's the richest man on earth. <laughs> rich. Okay. Well, we got rich people in hell, so that's not really a problem. What else can you tell me? Well, he's he's obviously intelligent. I mean, he built this amazing ark. You don't do that without brains. Yeah, we got, we got intelligent people in hell too. What, what else? Well, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's quite a specimen. I mean, you should have seen him slinging around big wooden beams at 500 years of age. It's incredible. Okay, well, great. Well, maybe I can use that because uh, that might make him vain. It might make him overconfident. I can use that. All right, what else? What else you got? Well, he's, uh, you know, he prays. He prays a lot. He prays, huh? Hmm. Oh, no matter. We got people in hell that prayed all the time. What else? Well, he's, he's a family man, you know, he's, he's monogamous, he's married, just one woman, and uh, uh, they got kids. Yeah, we got family people in hell, too. I can, I can deal with all that. Tell me more. Well, he, uh, he's highly moral, always wants to do the right thing. Yeah, well, that's great. I, yeah, that's, that's my specialty. I mean, if I could convince people that it's all about their own morality and their own human effort, <laughs> then I've got them. Okay, so we're, we're, we're good. Yeah, this one guy, he shouldn't be a threat. Is that it? 
Uh, well, there's one more thing. You see, uh, after he left the ark, he built an altar. He built an altar. What did he, what did he do on that altar? Uh, well, he, uh, he made a sacrifice to God. Wait a minute. Are you saying, you mean, you mean, yes, he's a worshiper. <laughs> and folks, listen, there is nothing more devastating to our ancient foe than someone who worships the Lord Jesus Christ. If you give all glory to God and you recognize what he did for you, and what he says he's going to do. And you show with your very life that you are all about making a sacrifice unto the Lord. As Noah did. But see, our perspective is different. Noah looked ahead to the fulfillment of what God said he would do. We do that too. But we also look back to what Jesus did do. And then we look to his second coming. And we live in the light. Of that knowledge. What kind of sacrifice do we make? Do we build an altar and burn stuff? No. We do what Paul says in Romans 12. When I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual worship. Are you building? Are you gathering? Are you entering into his rest? Are you reproducing? spiritually and are you worshiping because when he comes we need to be ready because he's bringing a new world a new world let's pray heavenly father i thank you for the promise of your word i thank you that in the pages of genesis we see things that are applicable to us god we see stories that are true every word but we're not reading them just to be historically informed we are reading them to to reap a lesson God, we thank you for that lesson today. Thank you for everybody in this room. May we go out and rest and do the things that you've called us to do by your power, not ours. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.